Now, my name is Julian. I'm one of the senior pastors here alongside my wonderful wife, Libby. And it's my pleasure to introduce a bit of a new series this morning we're calling Faith Foundations. And for the next six weeks, we wanted to create some prayer points. We wanted to create some talking points. And we wanted to create some moments where we open the word of the Lord together and look at what is the framework of our faith. What is the foundation of our faith? And so often people, like for us, we're, we're new senior pastors. We've been coming about six weeks and you want to begin with vision, but the truth is we begin with mission. See, vision is the picture or, or, or an idea of what shape something will take. Mission is the what and the why. And what we want to talk about is what is our mission? What is the why? What is it that we're here to do? Uh, and one of the things we want to do is continually grow. And so as we look at these foundations, if you're brand new to certain Vineyard, uh, this is going to feel brand new to you. If you've been here and you're not so new, um, you've been around for a little bit, it's a great chance to underpin our foundations, to reassess uh, some of those things. And so um, what I really want to talk about this morning is the cost paid by Jesus that changes us. It's the cost that changes you and I. The reason why we are here largely, the reason why we're doing what we're doing and, and we're living the way we're living is because the cost paid by Christ has transformed our hearts and lives. And if you're yet to experience that, our prayer is that as you encounter Jesus, as the Holy Spirit moves in your hearts and lives, you'll understand something of the weight and power and majesty of the cost paid by our Heavenly Father for you and I. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to open to Philippians 2, or you can scroll to Philippians 2. I think there's a bit of a sweet irony, like if you go back way in ancient times, they used to open scrolls to find scriptures. And then we went to books at the dawn of the printing press, and now we flip pages. And now we're back on phones. You can still scroll through the scriptures, so maybe there's something poetic there. But a little bit later, we're going to hit uh, Philippians 2. And the question that kind of got me thinking as I was reading these verses written by the Apostle Paul was around this idea of value, the value that Jesus places on us, the value that our Heavenly Father places on us, but also the value that we sometimes place on each other or the lack of value that we sometimes place on each other. And the question that was really driving me is this, is have you ever found yourself underestimating someone's true value? Have you ever found yourself underestimating someone's true worth? And a side question is perhaps you've even doubted your own value. Perhaps you've even doubted your own worth. And as I've been reflecting over the years and I've understood that I've not always valued myself in the best way and I've not always valued others in the best way, even though I'm someone who would say, has been following Christ for a long time. I'm someone who would say, I've been a Christian for a long time. There's been times where I have got this back to front and I've not allowed my heart to be changed. And I was kind of a teenager around the, the birth of social media and the internet. And back in those days, there were no rules. There was no research. And if you were to look at the stats around uh, the mental health around those things, it would make your head swirl. And I'm not a proponent for it being a good thing or a bad thing. I think Things like media and interaction across the internet, they're tools, aren't they, right? They're, they're ways we get to communicate. Some of you will have connected with long-lost friends. Have you ever done that before on Facebook? You've found people you've not spoken to for years, and there's this beautiful connection that takes place. But with something good on a tool like that comes something maybe unhelpful as well. And the idea of comparison and trying to live up to a measure and trying to live up to a standard. And as a teenager, uh, when I was 16, I was at my peak of fitness. 
Uh, and I know I look like I'm there now, but back when I was 16, it was even more so. Someone's laughing again. What's that about? Uh, when I was 16, this was what it was all about. In my school, particularly for guys, it was all about competition and strength and appearance and attractiveness. And it's not just an issue that one type of people face. I think it's an issue that all people face. And what we do is we start to compare ourselves. We start to judge our own self-worth and our own value compared to other people. And at 16, even though I think I was something like 5 to 8% body fat, if you can believe, the best shape of my life, genuinely in, in my own self-perception, I thought I was overweight, unfit, and unattractive. Thank you. Someone said, ah. Oh. And I'm aware that this can bring up a variety of issues, and I wonder if that is you uh, this morning. There's a chance for us to pray a, a little bit later on, but what happened was I started to see the world through this framework of comparison, this framework of competition. And where we live, right, that's, that's a pressure that weighs in on us all the time. The, there's a media narrative, there's a social narrative, there's a, a work narrative that tells us we have to be a certain way in order to be valuable, in order to be worth something, in order to live up to a standard. And I felt that as a 16-year-old, and it would take me 10 years, and finally seeing a psychotherapist helping me work through some of these things, who was also a Christian, so that really helped, unpicking that and starting to see myself through the lens of Jesus, through the framework of heaven, understanding what God had to say about my worth and identity. But back in that, that age range, I was locked up. The irony being, in my mid-30s, how old am I, 35, 36, something like that, getting on a little bit, um, got a long way to catch up. No, not really. No, it's, it's sort of 30s are the best. Hannah's just made it to your 30s. Hip, hip, hooray. Welcome to a great decade. And uh, the irony being, I'm not at my peak. Like, my bones ache. When I stand up, I feel like something may break. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. But I'm more comfortable with who I am than I've ever been. And I don't know, there's like a, there's a bit of a bitterness in me towards my younger self who had that self-perception that was awful about themselves but had peak fitness. And now... Not so much, but very comfortable because of the way that I see myself through the lens of heaven. And we're going to be talking a lot about lenses and framework, because really faith foundations is what's the framework? The frame, if you work in TV and media, as some of our, our team do in the room, is what we focus on. It's what our attention is on. We frame a, a scene, we frame a situation that, that carries our focus. And the lens is almost the flavor or the influence that colors the way we see the world. And how we view ourselves and how we view others has a massive part to play in our Christian faith. You see, if you view yourself with low value, what's the danger of you viewing others? It's with low value, right? And so we've got to allow Christ to work in our hearts and work in our minds. I mean, how many times do you come across other people and we make snap judgments all the time, don't we? If we're really honest, I still do this as, as a Christian. Uh, I'm by no means perfect. You will all discover that is very much true as we go along. I get things wrong from time to time, and I still make snap judgments. It's thought that when you meet someone within the first 30 seconds, you've made your mind up whether you're going to like them or not. That's mind-blowing. Before we've even spoken to somebody, or maybe somebody's told you about somebody else, and you've already decided what you think about that person before they've even had an opportunity to say a word. And we make those value judgments, we make those snap judgments, and sometimes we're hard on others simply because we're hard on ourselves. Have you ever had that in your life where you hold yourself to such a high expectation that it's impossible to attain? 
Has that been your experience where actually you don't let yourself off sometimes when you make a mistake because, hey, we've got to be perfect, right? And the narrative of our culture, the narrative of our society is health, wealth, and happiness. And if you don't appear to have those things going on to a high standard, we're really hard on ourselves. And then we might look at somebody and go, well, that person doesn't have anything to offer me. Or that person doesn't have anything to contribute to me. Or that person doesn't earn enough, therefore I don't want to connect with them. And we realize we're making a value judgment. We're making a worth judgment on who we think this person is. And the question I've, I've really been asking is, is that the requirement that God has with us? Is that the way that Jesus views us? Is that the way that our Heavenly Father thinks about us? And the truth is that there was a cost to us, therefore there's a value on us, right? There was a cost paid by Jesus, and it's the cost that changes us. It's the cost that causes us to shift. And it's not just the cost. Of course, it's other things. It's the Holy Spirit working on your heart. It's transformation. It's taking steps on the journey. It's meeting with others to encourage you in your faith. But it begins with understanding the cost of Christ, the cost that transforms our hearts and lives. And if you're there with me in your Bible, we're going to open Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verse 5 to 11, and we're just going to unpick some of the things that Paul has written about Jesus, some of the things he said, he said about how we are to be viewed and how we view our, our Savior, Jesus. This is what it says, starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, he's talking to the church here, he's talking to those that call themselves Christians, and he's talking about how we treat one another. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, we could spend a year on that, but we're not going to. We're going to include that as a part of this morning. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, whatever that means, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a passage to look at on a Sunday morning. And I want to encourage you as well, take this conversation beyond a Sunday. Spend some time reading it in your own time and praying it through. But that first line, verse 5, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is a challenge. So the question then becomes, what is the mindset of Christ Jesus? What is it to have the mind of Christ? And as you read further on in those verses, what you realize is that Paul is talking about a sincerity. He's not talking about habitual Christianity or the culture of Christianity or, or the feel and flavor of church. He's talking the way we think and the attitude we have towards one another needs to be with the same mind as Christ. And actually, if we're to grow in those things, that means we need to understand who Jesus is. We need to build a sense of intimacy with Jesus. We need to develop our relationship with Jesus so that we understand what is the mindset of Christ. But it becomes a sense of newness. And at the start, I talked about lenses. The way we see the world is colored by our experiences and our encounters and things that have happened to us and the way we understand the world around us. 
but there's the lens of Christ. That is the mindset of Christ. How is it that Jesus views my life? How is it that Jesus views your life? What is it that the mindset of Christ would mean for me in how I interact with those around me? And what would it mean if I started to view other people with the mindset of Jesus? And it's not a principle or a tokenistic nice idea. It's got to be from a place of authenticity, sincerity, and something that is genuine. He then goes on in that verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's an interesting phrase. That How is it that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped if Jesus is God? And what you'll find is interesting about the Roman uh, context in the first century world. This is when Paul was writing. He was writing largely to, to a Grecian Roman audience. They had this idea of hero narrative. And it basically went something like this, that if somebody in society, normally the emperor or the ruler of the area, was capable or competent in an area, they were elevated to a heroic state. And not only were they elevated to a heroic state, they were considered somewhat divine. So that meant if you were really skillful, if you were really competent, if you were seen as successful, or whatever definition of success would be given in the first century world, you were considered a hero. And if you're considered a hero, they almost deified you. And when you hear it like that, you think, actually, is that too dissimilar to our day and age now? I'm a big Formula One fan. And when I see the print media that's coming out from Formula One, I see Max Verstappen stood on a podium and there's this hero pose and there's this champion pose. It happens in FIFA and football as well. We, we elevate our sports stars onto a podium and they take these hero poses and they, they look elevated, they look up to them and we even use phrases that we think we're joking but maybe there's something to it where, wow, they're godlike in their ability. And we elevate heroes to a place of the divine, and that's exactly what would be happening in the context that Paul is writing to. That people are being elevated to the divine, they're being elevated to hero status, and therefore they're worthy of your attention, they're worthy to be followed, and they're worthy to be emulated. Yet when it comes to Jesus, it's the opposite. See, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, Jesus as our saviour, even though he is the, literally the God who created the universe, he is a part of the Godhead, he himself has humbled himself so much that he did not even consider that something to be grasped. But we do that all the time. We consider equality with God something to be grasped. We do that because we look at those who are successful in our lives. We look at those who are doing well in business. We look at those who are, who are wealthy, who are smashing it, who are killing it every day, who are rise and grind and, and being successful by whatever measure we use. We say those phrases, but what we do is we elevate them to the divine. But that's not so with Christ. The one person that could claim it says it's not even something I consider to be grasped. That's a challenge for me as a Christian. It's interesting then that we're called to follow and have the mindset of Christ. So what does that mean now for our measure of success? What does that mean for the way that we view people that we look up to and we aspire to when Christ himself does not consider equality to be grasped? What are we then considering the most valuable thing in our lives? What are we then considering to be a, state, a, a status of worth, if you like? It's a huge challenge for me as a Christian. Verse 7 says this, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made 
in human likeness. It's interesting that word servant there, I don't know if you know, but the New Testament is written uh, uh, exclusively in Greek and not just modern Greek, it's in ancient Greek. So there's like even more complexities to it. It's what we call a semantic language, which means one word can have several meanings. And so typically you'll maybe hear a preacher say, in the Greek it says da-da-da. And I'd be like, oh, that's really interesting. It's got several meanings to it. It could mean this and it could mean something extra or deeper. Now the word servant is one of those where we've translated it in the English pleasantly. The word servant in the Greek is the word doulos, and if you're interested in learning Greek, doulos, the easy way to remember that is do lots of work, doulos. Doulos means slave or servant, but actually more particularly, it actually means slave. And so we've translated that as servant because that just lands a bit more palatably in the 21st century, but, but the core meaning of doulos is universally one who has their freedom entirely restricted and is compelled. Jesus considered himself a doulos, a servant, not so much a servant, but a slave. He took the lowest form. He took, in many ways, the highest level of humility by making himself nothing, by making himself a servant for you and I. Both have connotations of subservience, servant and slave, but, but slave just carries it to a new level. Like, actually, if I'm to have the mindset of Christ, I'm to follow Jesus, and Jesus made himself a slave, how does that challenge my view of success? How does that challenge my view of worth, and particularly my worth to others? And the question then comes, are we greater than Jesus? Right? Are we more prestigious than the king of heaven and earth? And our hunger for a sense of supreme self, of elevated status of whatever measures of, of success we see in our culture and our world, suddenly pale into insignificance when we say, but I'm called to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. I'm called to view things differently because the cost of Christ causes me to change. And it goes on even further in verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So this same Jesus, who is Lord of heaven and earth, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is above everything, who is God revealed in human form, humbles himself, does not consider equality something to be grasped, consider himself, himself a slave and a servant, then becomes obedient to death. But he constructed the universe, yet he made himself subservient to death. It's a construct of his hand, and what's more is that Jesus died on a cross. And I don't know if you know this about the context, but in the Bible there's a verse around, if you're hung on a tree, you're cursed. So not only did he become obedient to death, but he, he died in a way that was considered shameful, and some would say that only a sinful person could have died on a tree. This is mind-blowing. This is the Jesus that we're talking about. This is the Jesus that we serve. He humbles himself, but he goes further and treats himself in such a manner to show that he is able to reach us, but also elevate us. We'll come to that in a little bit. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And in what hyper-religious Judean Roman context in the first century world does a cursed man dying on a cursed tree get elevated to the most high. Remember, the first century context is you've got to be a hero. You've got to be successful to be considered anything divine. Yet Jesus comes along and does the complete opposite. And I'm humbled and I'm challenged by that. 
Alan Hoare writes it like this, of an unknown poet. What is the way, they asked Jesus. He said, I am the way, follow me. Where are you going, they asked. To that place below all people, so that I can lift them up to heaven, he said. Can I have two people just to help me very quickly who don't mind being on camera? Michael, straight in there. One, one more. Quick, quick, quick. Yes, thank you, Lorraine. Give him a round of applause. It'll make the <laughs> silence on stage. So Michael, come stand here for me. Take this lovely clean rope. Lorraine, come stand here for me. Take this rope over here. Wow. So hold it just roughly tight, not too tight. I need you to give me a little bit of gift. So, so here, here's what we're really seeing in the passage in Philippians. This is almost a summary of the incarnation. It's a very complicated way of, or a very theological way of saying this, that before you had the, the heavenlies, the most high, the place of the divine up here. And in the beginning in Genesis, the story goes, you don't have to turn to it, you can read this in your own time. In Genesis 2, when God created humanity, there was a sense of relationship and closeness in, in a place of, of glory, if you like, and, and the story goes that, that there was a moment where we disobeyed God and sin entered the world and, and human beings fell. And they fell, and it's almost like a falling down and they became disconnected for this place that we would say is, is where our Heavenly Father is. And for a long time there was a disconnect, for a long time there was a separation and there was, there was things that allowed us to, to reach up and in between, but up here you had our Father and you had Jesus there in the beginning, and the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is John 3.16. So what happens is, just give me a little bit of give. He sends Jesus down. Hold it a bit tighter. And, and now what you have is us down here, where we fell from this place of glory. You have Jesus being sent by the Father to create a pinch point between where we are and where we should have been. And it's this incredible, powerful image that the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords expressed his love for you and I so much that he came down to where the fallen place was. He came down to where it was messy, to where it, it was disconnected from God, and he lived among us, being found in human form, and he paid for our sin. And he was nailed to a cross, the most shameful thing that could happen. And as a result, therefore, verse 9 in Philippians, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. But what's interesting is now is there is a way where there was no way. There's a point where we can meet with our Heavenly Father, we can be restored, we can be redeemed is the Christian word we use. When we give our lives to Jesus, we can receive the forgiveness of our sins and we are restored in our relationship to our Heavenly Father. That means that as he's exalted, we're lifted up with him. Thank you so much for helping me, guys. Give a massive round of applause for Lorraine and Michael. And it's just this powerful image that actually true humanity is Jesus. That, that if you consider that picture, if you consider that story, what happened was we lost true humanity. We were made in the image and likeness of God, but it became distorted and actually, the only way to, to restore that picture was to send Jesus, who was the model of true humanity. Paul elsewhere calls him the second Adam. In other words, this is what true humanity looks like. It looks like Jesus. 
So when you and I consider the, the, the struggles that we face and the things that disconnect us from God, the things we would traditionally call sin that create this sense of separation, the evil that we maybe sometimes see in the world, what we understand is it's not God's intention. It's less than what he had as an image for us. But what he did have in mind was Christ, to be like Christ, to be like Jesus. And Paul said it there in Philippians, to have the mindset of Christ. And that's the challenge for you and I because that's the cost that he paid and it's the cost that causes us to change. It's the cost that is a foundation for us. It's the cost of knowing that, that God sent everything for you and I to redeem us, to redeem our hearts so that we might be restored to our heavenly father. It's the cost that moves us. And it's no cheap and easy thing that he literally ransacked heaven. We sang Reckless God earlier and it's a bit of a contentious song at times for some Christians because they'll say, can God really be reckless? But really it's a, a great way of describing the overwhelming grace and love of our father. Like he sent his one and only son and risked it so that you and I could have the opportunity to be restored. And as he's restored and as we find ourselves in him, we are restored to purchase a freedom. Really, because... Before, and Paul talks about this elsewhere, we were dead in our sin, we were locked, and we were trapped in our sin. But actually, Jesus loves us so much, and it's always the right answer in church, right? It's always the thing that we say is the right answer. You're very safe when you say that word, but it's demonstrated in the cost that he paid for you and I. And that cost should move us, it should transform us. It's the greatest thing you could do for somebody you love is to lay your life down for them. And what it got me understanding as I look back on my 16-year-old self with this low sense of self-worth and this way I viewed myself as something less is that that's not how God views us. Because if that was true, he wouldn't have sent his son. He wouldn't have paid a cost if there were no value to you. And so your value and your worth is demonstrated in Philippians 2. It's demonstrated in the love of the Father sending the Son. And in doing that, we understand that every human being has value. When you see somebody and you think they have nothing to contribute, they have value. They're made in the image of God. When you see somebody that, that isn't as productive as you, you imagine a successful person should be, that doesn't mean they don't have value. The Father sent his one and only Son for them. And when you're hard on yourself and you feel like you're not living up to a standard, you have to understand that he valued you so much, he sent his one and only son. The cost should change the way we view ourselves. Imagine if we started to measure people in those terms, right? Imagine you go into work Monday or you go back to your families or your friends and, and you start to consider everybody you meet with the value of heaven with the worth that God has in mind for them. What if you started cutting yourself a little bit of slack as well, recognizing you're not perfect, that we get it wrong, that we mess up from time to time, and we recognize that the love of the Father was so overwhelming, it still means you're worth something to him. It still means you're valuable to him. It still means that you matter. Those three prayer points we mentioned, actually, if you can begin praying for having the mind of Christ? What would change in your week? What would change in your day-to-day? -day? What would change in the people that you meet in the street? What would change with the person that seems without hope? What would change in the person that you're currently in a feud with? 
I know there's a lot of Christians in the room, but hey, guess what? We still hold grudges from time to time, don't we? Maybe it's just me. We still get it wrong from time to time. What would happen if we started to have the mindset of Christ? What would happen if we said, now, bearing in mind what Paul has said in Philippians, what would it mean for me to have the mindset of Jesus in everything? To view the world with, with the love of the Father. To view others with the love of the Father. To view each and every person that our society maybe doesn't deem valuable because of our arbitrary measures of success. What would happen if we started to see them through the lens of heaven? I'll finish with this. Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright, as he's known to theologians, says this. The decision of Jesus was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really means to be divine. That actually in following Christ and having the mindset of Christ takes us to a place of glory. When we allow the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and see the world as Christ sees the world and see others as Christ sees others and to be moved by the compassion of God, what we find is we're having the mindset of Jesus. We see the world differently and things can start to change when that happens. It's not just that, but it's the cost that changes us. It's the cost that begins something. It's the cost that transforms our hearts. And something you think about this week is, what can I do to have the mindset of Christ Jesus? So with those challenges in mind, I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And even in this time of worship, actually, maybe a prayer you can be praying silently as we sing together, and when we're singing, what we're doing is we're focusing our attention on our Heavenly Father. We're opening our hearts to what the Holy Spirit has to say, and as we do that, begin to frame your attention on that question, Lord, creating me a new heart. Give me the mind of Christ. Let me see the world, and let me see others in the way that you see them, in Jesus' name.